0: All right, let's go to our scripture reading for this morning. We're continuing our series in the book of Hebrews, and we're looking at chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. I'll go ahead and read this for us. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For... We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, Let's say a prayer and dive into God's word together this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for feeding us your word. And sometimes we don't even realize it until we hear it. That's what we actually need it to feed upon. I just ask that you would uh, increase our sense of hunger, even as we feed upon your word. And Holy Spirit, give us wisdom to understand it and to live it out. So be with us. Those of us who are uh, watching this uh, through a live stream, uh, wherever we are, as we open up our hearts to you, uh, open our ears so we may hear you and fellowship with you and commune with you, even in that room and in that space. Uh, be present with us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now, most of you don't know this. Um, But before I had applied to seminary, I was actually applying to a bunch of philosophy programs around the US uh, because I thought then what I wanted to study was philosophy. And so in order to do that, I had to uh, write this big philosophy paper, fill out a long application, and most importantly, uh, I had to get some solid recommendation letters from a handful of philosophy professors. So I remember running around my campus and chasing them down and getting recommendation letters from them. Well, as I was doing all this and really struggling through this, uh, a very good friend of mine who had gone to seminary asked me to consider applying to seminary myself because uh, he's read my paper and he found that my interest had actually a lot more to do with theology than philosophy. And so he asked me to look into a seminary called Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando and I did, and the more I looked into it, the more I became interested. And so I decided to apply. But here's the thing. The application process for the seminary had one major difference, and that is who I get my recommendation from. Okay. Um, now, what I needed were recommendations not from philosophers, but from pastors. And I'm like thinking back on all the misbehavior at church thinking, what pastor would recommend me? But now that I knew I really wanted to go to seminary, uh, the question was, okay, who's going to help me get in? It wasn't enough for me to figure out where I want to go. I had to know who will help me get there. And that's sort of what our passage today is about. The author of Hebrews has been reiterating this point all throughout chapter 4, that the true rest you need is not the one that you thought you needed, it's not the one that Joshua gave to Israel. It's not the one that David gave to Israel, even though they were in the promised land. It's not found in any physical plot of land. It's not something as temporal as that. It's something eternal. It's permanent. It's found with God in his heavenly country. And now, his pointing, he is pointing his audience to where, not only where that true rest lies, but he's also going to point to them who's going to help them get there. It's not enough you identify where you need to go. You need to identify who will get you there. And this who representing you and recommending you is the way that you get in. And that representation is essentially what a high priest or a priesthood is all about. And the author had referred to Jesus as the high priest before in chapter 3, verse 1. Uh, he, he refers to Jesus as the high priest there. Uh, but here he begins to expand on that idea. And he shows us how Christ being our high priest um, is significant, why that matters. And first, he, he, he shows us how Christ, our high priest, alone can meet our, our deepest longings. And second, he shows us how Christ, our high priest, is present with us in our deepest suffering And then we'll see as an application just how we are to respond to this, okay? Deepest longing, deepest suffering, and our response, all right? So let's start with the first point and and with a little introduction. Uh, What was a priest in ancient Israel? A priest was someone who went in uh, to God's presence on behalf of God's people to represent them and to offer uh, a right sacrifice for them so they would be acceptable before god and enjoy fellowship with god and and that was very significant for them because that entailed for them everything else in life would be good the good life hinged upon their fellowship and communion with god Um, apart from god there's no exodus apart from god there's no promised land apart from god there is no nationality even Everything hinged on their fellowship with God. And the person who kept this relationship with God intact was the high priest. So the high priest played a very significant role in the in the life of identity of ancient Israel. Um, now it's it's worth mentioning here at this point that as soon as you present that picture to modern people, that's when they check out. Uh, the idea of needing to have some priest offer something up to God while the people down here tremble in fear, uh, it's so ancient. It's so archaic. It's so uh, Mel Gibson's apocalypto. Uh, it has nothing to do with me. It has nothing to do with modern day life. We don't do that kind of thing anymore. Uh, yes, we do. Uh, we just do it at a different kind of temple. Okay, here, Here's one example of what I mean by a different kind of temple. This is... Uh, this is from the Christian philosopher James K. A. Smith. It's, it's kind of lengthy, but it's really worth your time. Uh, he says, imagine that we are anthropologists from Mars, and we've entered this strange new world called 21st century America. And we're gathering data about them. And immediately, what we would notice is that people on this planet and especially in America, were gathered by the tens of thousands at a particular religious site. As soon as you enter this religious site, there is a sense of transcendence as the building provides a sense of escape and retreat from the mundane outside world. All around the interior, there are various colors and symbols and images that invite you to celebrate the good life. And very soon, as you enter further into this temple, you will find statues that are meant to be representations of the good life. And it, and it shares this good news with you that if you were simply dressed like one of these statues, you will live that good life. And a lot, all around the statues are posters that evangelize to you about this good life, invites you to receive this good life. And once you enter into the inner room There stands a priest who presides over an altar where a payment is made and the good life is then given to you as a reward. The offering is made, the priest gives you their blessings, and the people then will take that blessing and leave the local mall. Uh, What's his point? When you strip away the, the familiarity of the local mall, what you'll find underneath is really a spiritual liturgy, a form of worship where through a priest and an acceptable offering, you're received into the good life. In this sense, right, in this sense, we're not so different from ancient Israel. We just go to a different temple. Now, you can take this example further. Your temple could be a campus where the professor is the high priest, it could be a certain office or a job title where your employer, who can either promote you or demote you, is the high priest. It could even be your home, where your performance, where your spouse can become your means of acceptance. And the payment you make in these temples uh, are so much greater than what you would pay at the local mall, right? Because the, the, the priests of the modern-day temple they ask from you quite a heavy sacrifice and payment. I Think about all the pressure that you feel in each of these contexts. The demand is pretty much for your everything. It consumes your everything. And that's essentially what worship is. The, consum- the consuming of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the problem is whenever we get, get a call to worship from someone or something other than God, uh, we rather than gaining and finding our rest, we lose it. Rather than holding on to the good life, we lose our grip on the good life. And that's why we always move from one temple to another. We're nomads. We're, we're wanderers in the desert looking for an oasis. And the ultimate reason is this. In all of these cases, all of these instances, in all of these temples, uh, the one that must make the offering is you. You're the one who has to offer up the sacrifice. You must be the one bringing your offering. And that requirement for us to achieve something in order to be acceptable, that's, that's what's crushing us. And that really was the pattern of ancient Israel. The Israelites thought, okay, we've made our way into Canaan. We've made it. And Joshua was quick to remind him, no, there's a better rest than this plot of land, which you can lose, and they they do lose it. Same with David in the kingdom of Israel, when it was established in Canaan. He says, there's still a better rest awaiting you. There is a better life, and it's still to come. The people didn't believe that. And the author of Hebrews is pleading with his audience, the Jewish Christians here, and to all of us, the entire church, he's pleading with us to learn this lesson now. There's a better rest. And in order to enter that better rest, you need a better high priest. You need the great high priest. And so it's in the context of all this that he says what he says in verse 14. Take a look at verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. You want a confession, you want a good news that's really worth, really worth holding on to, that's really going to bring you into the good life, you need Jesus to be your high priest. Why? Because Jesus has passed through the heavens for you. Can you hear that? Uh, you didn't pass through the heavens. In fact, you can't. You have no business entering into heaven and standing before the throne of God. Jesus can, and he did. And he did it for you. See, when every other worldview in the world, every other priest in every temple are there to take something from you, here's Jesus, a great high priest who who enters into the heavens to acquire something for you gifted to you freely and that's why jesus's ascension right after his resurrection his ascension is such good news for us right it's not just oh wow cool imagery jesus flying into the sky it's gospel it's good news because for one that means in jesus we actually have a high priest who doesn't intercede for us temporarily on earth like all the other high priests but someone who can intercede on our behalf eternally in heaven And therefore, this means Jesus is the only one who can lead us into God's eternal rest and satisfy our deepest longing. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says this, He, God, has put eternity into man's heart. The heart's primary, primary function is desiring. And this means that what we truly desire at the very bottom, all of us, deep down inside, is eternity, God's eternity. We, we all want the good life, yes, but the more important thing is really that we want it forever. We want a good life that cannot be lost, that cannot turn bad. And we won't settle for anything less because that's what we were made for. Uh, just to add on top of this, let me quote C.S. Lewis here. It's as it's simple an argument for heaven as it can get, but I to me, it, it is still one of the most satisfying, existentially satisfying ones. He says, quote, If we find in ourselves a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. And if you read the case that he makes, it's actually... Lengthier than that he talks about how every natural desire has a natural object that satisfies that desire So we naturally desire rest. There is such a thing as sleep. We naturally desire uh, Nourishment there's such a thing as food So what does it say about us when we naturally long for life eternal a? Love that's eternal What does it say about us when we naturally rage against death It means we long for eternity and eternity exists. That's what we were made for. Again, the the only question is, do we have a way of getting in? And the author of Hebrews is telling you, yes, there is a way because there is someone who's gone ahead of you through the heavens. And it goes back to his exhortation in chapter 3, consider him. He's the one that gets you in. He's the high priest who gets you into the eternal country by presenting before the judge this glorious recommendation letter that belongs to him. He gives that to you without asking you to achieve anything for yourself. He's simply asking you to receive. He's the high priest who satisfies our deepest longing, and that is our our eternal rest in God's country. Uh, Second, at the same time, Jesus, as the great high priest, must go further. He has to go further. Beyond satisfying our deepest longing for that eternal rest, he has to be present with us in our deepest suffering. Because here's the question that will linger for us and has been lingering for us. And maybe some of you are struggling with this right now. And the question is, if I am suffering as much trial and temptation in the here and now as I am. How can I still be sure that I'm on my way there to the eternal country? Because the two don't seem to align. That's what we find in Jesus, the alignment between those who are tempted and tried and their entering into God's eternal kingdom. Here, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now, I know that the English word sympathize usually indicates uh, some kind of an emotional expression, a, a sort of a misery loves company type of sentiment. Okay? Somebody who shows concerns for the way you feel. That's being Sympathetic. But see, the biblical term sympathy is not just that. Uh, the word used here literally means to suffer with or to share in someone's suffering. That's sympatheo in the Greek. And, and that's what our great high priest has for us, a sympathy that he offers at a great cost to himself. How can he sympathize with us this way? By being in every respect, tempted as we are. And I love that present tense, as we are, not as we were. Because we're still in this constant battle against sin, aren't we? As Paul says, that which I uh, uh, want to do, I do not do, but that which I do not want to do, that I keep on doing. That's us, that's, that's what adopted children of God, becoming more and more like the begotten child of God, Jesus looks like here on earth. It's a constant battle and a struggle and Jesus knows that very well because he was tempted and tried as we are, in every way, yet without sin. And that's something really incredible if you think about it, that Jesus was tempted and tried in every way as we are. Uh, that means when Jesus entered this world, as a divine son of God, fully human and fully divine, uh, he didn't choose to shield himself from the brokenness of this world with his divinity. Not a bit. That's something we do. We, we, we sh- try to shield ourselves from the brokenness of this world all the time, whether it's with money, with comfort, with conveniences, power, power. We, that's really a big attempt to shield ourselves from the brokenness of this world. Jesus entered this world with none of those things, none of those privileges, none of those shields. He entered, in, he entered into a state of utter poverty with no power, no money, no privileges whatsoever when he deserved them all. And then he proceeds to live a life full of sorrow and suffering and betrayal and temptations. Two, identify with our brokenness and our broken world in every way. And this way he offers us a sympathy that is at a great cost to himself. Why did he do that? Because by being tempted as we are in every way and suffering all that there is to suffer in this broken world, he can legitimately, in every way, be our representative in the court of God and offer up to the judge the precise payment that will get us in, that will get broken people like us into the heavens. The cost of his sympathy was his offering up of himself as payment for sin, his propitiation. And the implication of this, the immediate application for us is, this means we can still be assured of our heavenly country and our citizenship in the kingdom of God as we our suffering as we are tried and as we are tempted and often failing. This frees us to be weak. This frees us to be helpless. It frees us to boast, actually, in our helplessness and our weakness. Why? Because that's what Christ is representing. Weakness not those who are strong but those who are weak and if if you can acknowledge that today right then you ought to really rejoice because you are well represented in heaven blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of god this is why we must have a high priest who will be pre- who can be has been present in our very own sufferings and he has now Uh, If you understand this, how Jesus, your, your great high priest, perfectly satisfies your deepest longing and is perfectly present with you in your present suffering, then there's only one thing left to do, our response. And what is our response? That's verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need we must respond with confidence. To do what? To draw near. Draw near to the throne of grace. The very literal presence of God. Unlike the, the, the Shekinah glory that was dwelling behind the curtain in the, in the Holy of Holies, this throne is where, where the, the almighty God literally dwells, is literally present, you can have the confidence to draw near to that. Uh, The author of Hebrews presents this idea of drawing near once again in chapter 7. And there he says something that really highlights for us what this drawing near means. Uh, It says in Hebrews 7, verse 25, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost, uttermost, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives, to make intercession for them. What does it mean to draw near in, in this context? It means being saved to the uttermost. A permanent nearness. Uh, not because you're able, but because your high priest is. Uh, the word uttermost, Pantaleus, means eternity, Forever. Uh, This is why Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. Meaning there's nothing left now to be done for God's people to dwell with God forever, to be near the throne of God forever. It's finished. Otherwise, he wouldn't say that. Why should we and how can we draw near to God's very throne with confidence even now by faith? Because you will Through your high priest, draw near to God's throne with confidence forever. Forever. That's why. And this is where we encounter the very reassuring, beautiful doctrine called the perseverance of the saints. It's really the good news of the gospel in its perfected final form. See, the good news is not good because you're given merely a chance at being saved, the gospel is not good news because you're saved now unless you lose it through your disobedience and your sins. That's not good news. The gospel is good news because by the grace of our Savior and a high priest, you are saved to the uttermost, forever, eternally, eternally drawing near. Uh, John MacArthur put it like this, and he likes to talk bluntly, so it's going to sound a little bit like that. He said, if you could lose your salvation, you would. If you could lose your salvation, you would. Because, see, if disobedience leads to death under the law, which is what the curse of the law is, then no one will live because we all disobey, even Christians. No one would be saved then. But you see, the whole point of the gospel is that for those of us who are in Christ, even when we disobey, we don't die under the law because Christ died under the law for us. That's why Jesus is the great high priest. No offering is more effective for us than his. His offering is complete. It's once and for all. So to say that those who still have sin issues might cancel out what Christ has paid for them, those are contradictory statements. That's calling God a liar in a way, isn't it? If Christ paid for the sins of his sheep, no sheep can be lost. I think Jesus' own words in John chapter 10 are most definitive, so let's go there he says in john chapter 10 i give them eternal life and they will never perish never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand no one and would you include should you include yourself in the no one yes absolutely no one will snatch them out of my hand now and then because your adoption is so secure and so guaranteed, he goes on to bring the father into the picture as well in verse 29. My father who has given them to me, right? See that it is not believers who give themselves to God. The father who chose them gives them to the son is greater than all. And again, no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. Not only is the son of God holding on to God's people and interceding for them, so is their heavenly father who's adopted them by his grace. And you think you can somehow snatch yourself out of God's hands? Are you more powerful than God? Or do you think that the father who has adopted you will abandon you, abandon a child? He'll never do that. He'll never lose one of his own. One, because the Father is greater than all. And two, the great high priest is interceding for you eternally and he will never fail you. That's the beauty of the gospel. In a sense, it's, it's what my one of my professors in seminary called the music of the gospel. That's the music. That's what makes the gospel sing. The security and eternality of this salvation and the confidence we have in it the fact that jesus is representing us not temporarily like earthly high priests but eternally in the heavens that's the music and then here's the then the invitation to dance to it right it's like my kids whenever they hear music they, they're invited to dance to it in step with the music what does it look like for christians to dance to this music of the gospel Composed by the Father, performed by the Son, made audible by the Holy Spirit. Our dance is this. It's holding fast to this confession. Holding fast to this gospel. And, and you might ask, okay, why why do we have to hold fast to this confession if we cannot lose our salvation? Right? Here's one one reason. Because you need to be able to dance to this and respond to this, to know for sure you're actually, you're actually saved. In holding fast to the gospel of Jesus Christ, what you're doing is not securing your salvation. What you're doing is you're securing your knowledge of it, the remembrance of it. And this way you avoid the danger of being one of those people who turn to Jesus on the last day saying, Lord, Lord, to whom Jesus would say, I'm sorry I never knew you. Those who trick themselves into thinking they're true believers when they're not. And and we will get into this more in Hebrews chapter 6. But it's as John also said in 1 John chapter 2 verse 19, that those who went out from us were never really with us. They were really never saved. Otherwise, they would have continued with us. So here, holding fast to your Savior is not so that you will somehow strengthen God's love for you. That's not why we do this, to increase God's favor on us. It's so that you will strengthen your love for Him and respond to Him as He has responded to you by grace. That's the reason for holding fast. That's the ultimate reason why we get to love God as as if we're entitled to His love because He has lavished that love on us. As it says in 1 John 4, 19, We love because he first loved us. His love is done. His love is past tense. His love is permanent. And so we love him in response. Holding fast to this confession, drawing near to this God of grace, this is what sweetens, in a sense, this bitter walk in this wilderness called life, life on this side of heaven. This is what makes your fellowship with God And your time in worship and fellowship with one another, an oasis to rest in, a well to drink from. And this is where we get little glimpses, little foretastes, and little manas from heaven as we await the feast that is coming. So hold fast to this good news. Draw near to God with confidence today. And if you wake up tomorrow, if God grants you a tomorrow, draw near again and repeat until you find yourself drawing near to the literal throne of grace where your great high priest awaits you. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your Son, our great high priest. We ask that you would give us eyes to see him and consider him and consider all other things as loss, as waste, as nothing compared to him. And may we hold fast to him because he is the one holding fast to us. And may we increase in our assurance, our confidence, and joy in this salvation. And let it encourage us, even as we walk through this life filled with trials and temptations, as we remember a high priest who was tempted and tried just as we are in every way. May we walk with him and consider it a privilege to be able to suffer alongside Him. We pray this in His merciful and mighty name. Amen.